Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Welcome to Space 3D. Two well-respected aerospace organizations had experience making high-altitude pressure suits, but only a couple of engineers from a relatively unknown company known as ILC Dover had set their sights on developing a true spacesuit with high mobility for the Apollo program. In his book, Lunar Outfitters, Making the Apollo Spacesuit, Avery tells the people's story of ILC and documents the technical details of the various models of the Apollo suit, including pre-Apollo suits. Bill retired in May 2019 from ILC Dover after 41 years of service. He was responsible for managing the test laboratories for the company, where the spacesuits made for the space shuttle and the International Space Station were tested prior to delivery. He also represented the company as their historian. Join co-hosts Tom Hill and me, Eleanor Rangers, for part two of our interview with Bill Airy on the history of U.S. spacesuits. In this episode, we'll discuss how ILC Dover tackled the development of the Apollo spacesuits with some particular emphasis on the special and indispensable role the seamstresses played in the creation of specialized equipment which never suffered a failure during the lunar program. Bill will also share some interesting anecdotes about the astronauts who visited ILC for suit fittings as well. But NASA came to us and said, okay, we're going to give you the prime contract, but you have got to get your act together. We're going to give you, uh, within this year, you're going to have to produce all your systems engineering, your configuration management. So we went to a company called Tempto Vault and brought in a bunch of engineers on their contract to train us and teach us how to do configuration management, uh, systems engineering, and and uh, we hired really good quality engineers. And at that point, George Durney, who was really the, the father, I say, of the Apollo suit, he wasn't college educated. He was just a really good visionary of how suits should be sewn together and working with these sewers out on the floor because an engineer might have an idea of what a suit looks like, and that's true today. But if you can't sew the materials together the right way and make it uh, structurally sound, so you have to work with the sewers on the floor and understand all this, uh, which George was able to do. But George was, um, he was a little rough around the edges and, and he would basically get in the face of the NASA, who was our customer, some of the people that worked there and tell them what his thoughts were. And he would tell them, no, uh, you know, he didn't pull any punches. He'd just tell them this is the way it is. And I think our management at that time was getting a little bit more uh, you know, we were, we were hiring good college trained engineers. We had some good engineers that came from BF Goodrich. And, uh, so we wanted to look a little more professional. So we put these engineers in and along with all the rigor we, we put into it by, uh, 65, 66, 67, we really had a pretty good team and, and we were moving along pretty well on the development of the suits. Wow. Now, for this second competition, I know I've seen footage of a suit that, that was developed that you basically had a guy running around doing like calisthenics and kicking field goals and like a, a, at like a, a yep. football field. Was that for that 65 competition? And I, I'm just curious about what the, you know, how did you guys come up with 
let's let's put him through his paces in a suit on a football field to really show them what the suit could do. I just it's really it's a great footage and funny at the same time. It is, yeah. You've really done your research there, Eleanor. That's a I get to ask that question a lot. Um, actually, uh, no that that footage that you saw was our model. Okay, so the first suits that we built was called the model A seven L. So it was the A for Apollo, the seventh model that we built from the from the nineteen fifties on up. We counted all the models we made, and that was the seventh iteration that we um, were going to have for the moon missions. And L was the, the letter that uh, NASA gave us to represent ILC. So that made it clear as to which model suit it was. So the A7L suit was what uh, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin wore on the moon, That was, a, and that lasted through Apollo 14. Um, by the time Apollo 15 came along, we needed a better suit that could handle the lunar rovers and and bend and flex at the waist uh, much better and have better mobility. And so that was the A7LB suit. We built a suit with all those new features in it, and that's the suit you saw. That was the A7LB suit uh, that we pitched to NASA as our next generation suit. And because it wasn't clear, there was actually a period of time where NASA was looking at hard suits that Litton was making. Uh, and I don't even know how people could think that NASA would go that way because they were metal suits, and if I'm sure you, you everybody knows how tight it was on board the space capsule, the Apollo and the lunar modules, there was no room for storage to anything. I mean, the, it was all they could do to fold up the fabric suits that we were making for them. I don't know how in the world we would have gotten these big metal suits on board, but nonetheless, there was a, a group within NASA that won these metal suits and uh, uh, for higher pressure because they wanted to work at a higher pressure, which is a whole nother thing I can go into detail on, but it has to do with physiology and all, because these suits work 3.7 pounds per square inch, so they, they worked at low pressure. Uh, so we were trying to pitch our suit and make it clear to NASA that our next generation suit was the best suit, and, you know, don't go to these hard suits and don't go to anybody else. And so we put Tom Sylvester, who at one point was my boss at ILC, he got in the suit, went across the street to the um, Wesley College football field, now, at the time, I think it was the Dover High School football field. And they took pressurized tanks of air and ran it through the hose to him. And they just threw the football to him. He kicked the football. He passed it. It was a pump pass and kick video is what we call it. And it was a pretty good video. I think it made it pretty clear to NASA that what we had was a much better suit to work in. And it did turn out to be a pretty good suit for the Apollo 15 through 17 missions. That's a great, great piece of footage. I actually have another question now, just getting into, I'm really fascinated by the people that actually sewed these suits. So those seamstresses. And I don't know if you can tell us about, were certain seamstresses chosen for this work with the original Apollo suits? And I also understand that the, you know, when you were, uh, checking out the quality of these suits. I mean, that type of evaluation could be really brutal. So um, I guess it's sort of a two-part question. Would love to understand a little bit about these seamstresses, what they had to go through, and then the, you know, the QC process. Sure. Yeah. There's a lot of, a lot of fascinating, fun stories to tell about the, uh, I call them the ladies. Cause like I say, there was really no males that did any of the sewing, you know, back in the fifties and sixties uh, more so than the now, a lot of the ladies were, they took the home ec in, in school. Um, their mothers taught them sewing, and it was something passed down through the generations. And it still happens today, but not as, as, as frequently. And so it was a trade that, while well, Playtex 
before we got into building the suits, Playtex had a group of sewers that they would bring on and they were industrial sewers. And again, they were probably trained at home or in school and they could work their way around a sewing machine pretty well. Uh, but, you know, they weren't making things that were life critical and the seam tolerances were, could be pretty wide open. And so when ILC starts the spacesuit business, we ended up pulling some sewers over from Playtex. So, you know, that is the one connection we had. They, it wasn't like they were building bras and girdles one day and then were building spacesuits. In a couple of cases, they were. And so the, I'll pick a name like Eleanor Foreacre. Eleanor Foreacre was a really colorful woman. I, I loved Eleanor. She was something else. She was um, one of the best sewers we had, and they brought her over from Playtex. And she was in there very early on uh, building these suits. And again, you'd have people like George Durney and some of the other engineers that had a vision of how suits would flex under pressure uh, because, you know, you're inflating something and it has to bend in the right places. And there's a lot of dynamics that go into a spacesuit, And that's partly there's a lot of the section of the book that goes into some of that detail. And so even though an engineer might have a conception of how this arm's going to be put together, it's not until they go down to the floor and talk to the women and say, someone like Eleanor and say, listen, this is what I want to do. I want to have this uh, shoulder or this elbow, be able to flex and do this. So how can we build this? And they would work with them to build these seams up and have certain types of overlaps, uh, the way the stitching is, is put in, what's the tolerance from the edge of the seam. All those things have to come together. And then the engineer and others can write the uh, what was called table of operations or work instructions that explain how to do it so that you have that configuration management. You control what you're doing. And so these sewers, these seamstresses, played such a critical role because not only did they play such a big role in the early design of the suit, but then they had to maintain that design all the way through and repeat it over and over. And then they built a seam, uh, let's say a sub section of an arm and it would go to the inspection table and the inspectors would inspect it. And it, if that seam was a 32nd of an inch off, which is like nothing is, you know, it's, it's so tight in, in some cases, not in all, but in some of the more critical areas, you had to be within a 32nd, a 16th of an inch, uh, different tolerances. And if it didn't meet that, then it could get scrapped out. And that was, uh, would amount to a lot of money if you, uh, you know, had a lot of, uh, failures, a lot of, a lot of failed seam inspections. So it was really critical that these uh, ladies did what they did and did it right. A lot of funny, interesting stories, like they used uh, basting pins to put in to hold parts together as they were sewing. And there would be an occasion where they'd sew that pin into the seam as it would go along. And they would find this, the, the, these pins later on, sadly, <laughs> One of them got through ILC and ended up down in NASA, and they found it before any mission, but they found a, a pin in a, a lunar boot, and that was a big no-no. So we started having to do x-rays, and a funny story was uh, Kent General Hospital, which is in, in Dover. Uh, they had an idea where if they could take some of these parts of the suit and take it over to the hospital and see if they could x-ray it, we could find the pins. And the hospital, I took a guess at this, but this Tom Probanek who worked at the time kind of confirmed it. He said, oh, yeah, the, the deal was, if, you know, you took a spacesuit over to the, the hospital and say, can we x-ray it? They were tickled to death to take part in the space program. So, you know, and so it was like, well, OK, if there's no one getting x-rayed right now, we, we can put it in there and we'll, we'll look at it for you. So we would do that. And 
finally got to a point where uh, Tom said there was a concern that we were bumping patients out of the way to get the spacesuits in there. <laughs> and so we went back to NASA and they agreed that what we were doing was the right thing. So they bought us a x-ray machine to do the x-rays from then on out. And uh, to this day, they still we still x-ray spacesuit parts as it comes through to make sure that there's no broken needles or there's no pins inside. But Eleanor was at the time, she was a uh, chief uh uh, she was in charge of all these sewers. Uh, and uh, if she found a pin in, um, in in any of the suit parts, she would come up, she came up behind one of the sewing operators one time and jabbed the pin in the rear end and said, don't you ever do that again. <laughs> so, and that's just the way Eleanor was. And from then on, they, then they did things like they, they rationed out like uh, each sewer would have, uh, maybe one sewer would have uh, pins with uh, yellow heads, another would have red red heads on it. And they, they had like, um, I'll just set, throw out a number out and say they had 16 each. At the end of the day, they had to produce their 16 needles, their pins. So, you know, it it got pretty challenging. But the, the, the seamstresses played such a big role. They had to take a test before if they applied for the job. They had to pass a, a basic test. And then there was a lot of training involved. And that's still true today. They They can... Uh, take come in and take a test, and then there's a lot of training that goes in is involved in it until they understand how uh, how well these people can can work. Because some some people some sewers are very patient because you have to be very patient. You're not running uh, large pieces of fabric through a sewing machine at a high speed. You can watch the needle go up and down very slowly as they walk this seam through it. So it's not for it's not the kind of job for everybody, and you have to be really be on. You're, you have to pay so much attention to what you're doing. Does ILC um, produce the fabric, or do they they bring the fabric in and then just integrate the fabric, for lack of a better term? Right. We uh, ILC goes out of house to buy all the fabrics um, because that's especially a specialty to itself. During the Apollo uh, days, a lot of that material was Dupont material, which was also a Delaware company, it was Wilmington, of course, and uh, so a lot of those materials, your nylons, your uh, your all the different materials that went into that um, Teflon. There's so many different materials we used. They were all DuPont materials. And then at the end of Apollo, we ended up um, going to a lot of different suppliers over the years. And to this day, we we go to a lot of a lot of different suppliers across the country to get our materials. I'm sure that the astronauts probably had to visit periodically during maybe the the fitting process and so forth with during Apollo. You know, any stories that. Uh... You've heard, you know, of that time at all that you want to share with us? Yeah, that was a, a fun period. A lot of the, um, of course, again, that was before my time, but a lot of the uh, veterans always like to tell their stories about the astronauts coming to visit. It was a big time for uh, the, the employees at ILC because here, uh, you know, before we landed on the moon, you had these astronauts coming into the plant. And I, I know on a couple occasions uh, I've heard stories about Neil Armstrong. They would fly into Dover Air Force Base which was only uh, maybe 15 minutes away from our plant there in Dover. And a couple of the engineers, people would go over and pick them up at the base and bring them back to the plant. And uh, I know uh, John McMullen, a good friend of mine, uh, was in the car one time when they picked up Neil Armstrong. And they really wanted to find out, uh, you know, not, not dig deep and try to pry or anything, but they really wanted to have just hear him talk about what it was like to be going to the moon, what, what, what his thoughts were. And they wanted some really deep, philosophical, uh, all kinds of interesting stories from him. And all he wanted to talk about between the air base and uh, 
the plant was uh, uh, ILC, whether they were on the stock market and how much the stocks were and how his stocks were doing. And <laughs> he just wanted to talk about the stock market. And John just wanted to hear all about what it was like to train and feel what it was like to go to the moon, but they couldn't get it out of them. And, but when the astronauts came there, they would go into the plant. They had a, a separate entrance where they could go upstairs. There was a air, upstairs area where there was a test uh, area and the suits would, they would get in the suit and pressurize the suit without the cover layer over it and then give their evaluation. And a lot of them would, um, well, they had to obviously give a, an honest opinion because they had, this is their suit. And there was a lot of different sizing adjustments that could be done to the suit. So a lot of them were very, you know, these were astronauts that were very critical of things and had a real good mind for uh, picking out the problems and trying to get the solutions. And so our engineers were also equally as good. Uh, Mel Case and a few others were really good engineers. So they would take the input from the astronaut, make all the sizing adjustments to the suit. They then put the cover layer on. And then in the afternoon, the astronauts would come back, get in the suit again and try it. And, uh, and then they would have to sign off on a, on a form saying that they accepted their suit. And I know on one occasion, uh, I'm not sure which crew it was, uh, but uh, the commander came in and got in the suit and a lot of them were pretty tough guys, you know, get in and like, yeah, this is good. This pinches a little right here in my shoulder, but I can live with that. It's not a problem. Most of them were like that. Uh, but on this particular crew, one of the other crewmate that was gonna walk on the moon, the lunar module pilot got in his suit and it went on for over an hour where he was like complaining, oh, this, this is really hurting right here. Can you adjust this? And it went on and on and on. And the story was that the commander looked at him and said, listen, you're either going to sign off on this suit or you're not flying with me. And he said he was kind of almost half serious, but kind of joking in a way, because this particular astronaut apparently was kind of a uh, cut up kind of guy. And uh, so his uh, lunar module pilot said, oh, OK, so he signed off on it. But there was a lot of back and forth on on this thing. And, it, you know, sizing a suit, if you if you're designing a spacecraft, you can build a seat and you can build all the controls in front of you and you pretty get get a pretty well get a consensus from the different astronauts. If you get 10 of them in there, they'll come to a good conclusion of what this this layout should be and everybody will agree to it. When you put a person in a spacesuit, it's very difficult. Everybody's different. Like I said, you'll have one astronaut gets in it and something might be pinching them a little in, in the sizing, might hurt them a little here or there. But then another astronaut get in the suit and they really want to whine about this and that and they want this adjusted and that adjusted. And are they wrong? No, they're not because they're the customer and they want it, they want it fixed the right way. So building and, and fitting suits for astronauts is a really difficult thing to do because of the physiology that's going on the, the mental state of what they're doing and how they perceive things. And so it makes it really difficult for engineers to engineer suits and then make it so that um, ultimately at the end of the day, you want to make a suit that can be adjustable so that you can take away some of that um, pain and discomfort. If, if in fact someone's feeling that you want to be able to give them the ability to do the adjustment. So it fits better. You want a, a good fitting spacesuit, but you know, a suit isn't just like a, you watch, you watch a movie, a sci-fi movie, and you see a spacesuit, and it looks really cool. But, you know, a spacesuit's got to save your life. It's got to protect you against all kinds of crazy environments in space or on, on the moon or on Mars. And so you've got the, the heat, uh, the heat uh, high and low. You have micrometeorite penetrations and the pressurization and the ability to flex a suit while it's pressurized. 
all these things going on. And so the suit's got a, it, it serves a very serious purpose, uh, but at the same time, it has to be comfortable too. So it's, it's, it's tough. Yeah, I'm sure you probably heard, I would imagine you've heard stories of people actually literally help holding their breath with, oh my God, I hope when he gets out of the spacecraft, he's not going to, you know, the suit's going to still maintain its integrity. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I can, I can truly say that there's never been a problem with the spacesuits uh, on Apollo. Um, there was a, uh, the only one was uh, uh, one of the Apollo missions with uh, Edgar Mitchell his glove was uh, canted over a little bit too far because of the way the uh, cable was set up in the glove, but it didn't cut the mission at all short. And it was just a comment he had. And it really, after, I think after he made the comment, it, it, he didn't even think about it, but it to us, it was something significant. We had to look at and when it came back, we brought Edgar Mitchell up to ILC weeks after his mission with our, with his suit, which had lunar dust all over it. So everybody that was working at ILC at the time was fascinated to be able to, get the suit in the lab with the moon dust on it and have him evaluate this, this glove and see what the problem was. But uh, there's never been any issues with uh, anything coming close to a suit failure. Uh, There's been water that's got, that that got in the suit because of the primary life support system. There was an issue in there and removing water during one of the space station walks. Um, So those, you know, spacesuits are, even to this day, they're still learning things about them. Um, you know, those suits at the time, the backpacks in particular, were coming back on the shuttle era. They were coming back for servicing. And at that point, when he had the water in it, in his uh, suit, that primary life support system had been up there for a little while in the station. And we were in this new era where things weren't coming back. They had to service them up on station. And there was an issue with that. So they were still learning. And um, I think a lot of it's been tested out now. And I think the next generation of suits are going to be pretty good suits. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Join us for part three of our interview with historian Bill Avery in our next podcast. For Emily Carney and Tom Hill, this is Eleanor Rangers for Space 3D.